This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. A lot of metal bands step into social and political consciousness, but Otep Shamaya is perhaps the only true protest artist in all of metal. First of all, she chafes at the label of metal, you'll hear more of that in our conversation. But this much is undeniable, Otep has been an articulate and outspoken activist for women and gay and lesbian youth, and against corrupt politicians and America's war machine throughout her career. And through it all, she's told vivid, graphic, and tragic stories of her own sexual abuse. Otep is a poet, budding novelist, and ferocious songwriter who says she's never fit under the umbrella of metal. The metal community is very, very exclusive as to what metal is. And so why try to keep forcing us from the label perspective into this place where the true metal people, metalheads, don't really dig us? I'm Matt Pikin. Today I speak with Otep Shamaya, who is touring on the heels of her seventh studio album, Generation Doom. We talk about her politics, her bouts with the music industry, the deep personal impact she's had on her fans, and the biases against women she sees and experiences within metal. It's a great conversation with one of metal's most important but overlooked artists. Stay with us. Before we get to our interview, I want to ask you, the listener, how would you like to have a nationally touring metal vocalist record your outgoing voicemail greeting? Or how about joining me in an interview with a major metal artist for an upcoming episode of Metal Brainiac? These can be yours by becoming a Brainiac Booster. You, the listener, will always get to hear the show for free. But for as little as $1 every month, you can support the work I do and keep it coming to you every week. So please, can you spare a dollar? All the details are on our website, MetalBrainiac.com. And thank you so much for your support. Let's step into my conversation with Otep Shamaya. Back in 2013, with Hydra, you'd said that that would be your last album. And I was wondering what you were thinking and feeling back in 2013 when you thought Hydra would be your last record. And then what inspired you to jump back into music and write new music for Generation Doom? As far as the last record, Hydra, I was kind of done with the music industry. thought I'd dealt with those types of the industry types of people, the corporate type of people enough. It was frustrating beyond measure. Most fans don't understand. I mean, I guess they would if they would apply the same kind of interactions they have with their bosses or their bosses' bosses. And for me, at that time, the people that I was dealing with, they had no intention of trying to understand the kind of band we are. They kept trying to make us into a metal band. We're not really a metal band. We have metal influences. We have the spirits of whatever metal is within us, but we also have a punk rock influence, we have a hip-hop influence, we have a spoken word influence. Fighting that and then also fighting people that don't really understand how important our fans are to us, what they mean to us, and what certain songs are important to them over what they think the industry wants to hear from us. Well, that's not really what we, what I started the band for and what we try to do when we create records or play shows. We're not out there for what the industry wants to hear. We're, we're playing music that our fans want to hear and that we want to play. 
You know, it's interesting to me that you were going through that. I understand, obviously, Capitol Records is a you know major record label. I would have thought with Victory, you would have had more kismet with the label there. You know, Victory has a, a punk ethos. You know, they have metal on their label as well. I'm surprised that you had those same experiences with Victory, and I, I imagine you're surprised as well. Honestly, I enjoyed Capitol Records very much. They didn't really have anybody like us sign there, but they trusted me. They trusted the people that I worked with as far as producers and, and video directors and photographers and art directors. They trusted them to get the message out in the right way, and they were fully supportive of us. I mean, they treated us extremely well. When we went to Victory, I thought, well, yeah, this is great. It's, a, it's the biggest indie label at the time that had a lot of diversity in their acts and they would allow us to be us and it was disappointing and aggravating to have had to deal with the frustration of a label that has an idea of who they think they are and what they stand for and they don't want any bands to go against that, you know, anybody to change their credibility or whatever that, that is. For us, we're an art band that stands for something and I didn't want to be told anymore to watch my political voicing standing up for victims of domestic violence, standing up for animal rights, standing up for gay and lesbian rights. I didn't want anybody to tell me that I shouldn't speak out against the war. I am stunned that that was even an issue. I mean, who did they think they were signing? You've staked your entire expressive life on those kinds of topics. The preaching of the choir, my brother. You know, it was it was a frustrating ordeal, and, and really, you know, even just opportunities for us were missed because they said, oh, you're not heavy enough for that, so we're not going to submit you. You're too heavy for that, so we're not going to submit you there. Meanwhile, we're out here just playing to our crowds, and our, our crowds are so passionate and so devoted and so loyal and diverse. We have fans who only listen to pop music. They're like Lady Gaga and Beyonce fans, and yet they also listen to Ota. And so it ranges from teenagers all the way to grown folks. So that's, that was our reality. That, that's what we were dealing with, and that's what we were trying to translate to them. So when Hydra came around, I had written a book about a serial killer who liked to hunt other evil people and, and other serial killers or just really just other bad people. So when it came time to write a, a record, I really found a lot of the songs that I was writing was relating back to that book. So I just thought, why not do a concept album based on that book? We haven't done a concept album since House of Secrets. We made some really great music on that album, and it wasn't released globally. They misspelled the title on the album. Instead of Hydra, it was Herda. There was very little care put into that album. So at that point, I was just ready to say, you know what? I can still tour. I can still connect with my fans. I can still make music. I just don't have to do it with these jackalopes telling me what kind of band we are or what kind of category we belong in or, or just in the way that they distribute our music, which hurts us. And then, you know, they'll go through the whole thing saying, well, then your loan is bigger and what you owe us is multiplying by a factor of 25 every month, every moment of every month. And it's just a, it's just a ridiculous game to be in. So I thought I'd just focus on being an unsigned artist, make our own music, travel the country, tour, which is exactly what we did for almost three years. We toured, we wrote, we played music, and, uh, you know, I did other stuff. I did voiceover work in The Hobbit and The the Battle of Five Armies, that was in the PS4 game, The Last of Us, some other projects I can't talk about because they make these confidentiality agreements. So I was happy 
at the time I thought that was going to be my last album. In whatever capacity that meant, I didn't have any plans on getting back into the label system. So it was going to be my last album with regards to a label system, for sure. I needed some space away from that because the spirit of music had left me. And I had no intentions of writing music. Just because I'm playing music doesn't mean I'm going to put out a record. We just kept writing because we enjoy writing. We kept playing because we enjoy playing. I walked away from that record with my everything about, about music creatively destroyed. And I had no interest in trying to fake it for another record. So I just needed, I, I wanted to walk away. And then slowly but surely as we played, as we were able to make more music, as we were able to create more and more rituals with our fans live on stage, I started to feel the spirit of music coming back. So my guitar player and I, Aristotle, started writing some songs just for fun to see what they'd sound like. And then we played with friends with the guys in Slipknot, and they asked us to play Knotfest. And when we started to play, they put us on, I'm assuming it was by accident, they put us on the local stage way out in the middle of nowhere. middle of our first song, the second stage area, I don't know what band was playing, and I apologize to them immensely because it wasn't intentional, but the, the entire second stage area cleared out and filled up over on ours, and you can see it. It's on our Facebook. You can see the footage. And that's when we started getting the calls from labels again and starting to ask us what we're doing, what we're interested in. And I met a guy that is on our current label named Dimitri, and I spoke to him about nine months before I was comfortable with partnering with a new label again. You said the spirit of music had left you, but your fans really buoyed you back up artistically. And did you feel that you had more things or different things to say than you had on the previous six records? You know, that you had new areas and topics that you wanted to really explore through Generation Doom? Yeah, I think so. It was a good time to get away and just go back to how I started as a writer, which is poetry and private journals. And so a lot of the record, most of the record was sourced from those private journals and the private poetry. So it was going back to the way I wrote Service Traw and the way that I wrote The Ascension. It just felt right. And so, yeah, the, the fans helped pollinate me again, helped pollinate the band again, I think, with this idea that we could really do it. We could do it on our own. When I first started you know, talking to labels again, my first question was, listen, I've got through social media, I have a 19 million person outreach. What can you do for me that I can't do for myself? There was a lot of long pauses on a lot of those conversations after that question. <laughs> But Napalm had some pretty good answers at first, and then those answers got better and better as, as the conversation went on over the nine months. I think that we made the right choice because Generation Doom, I went back to a more personal way of writing, and Hydra Side, House of Secrets Aside, those are concept records. Every other album since The Ascension was really about trying to get people motivated to be a part of the political system because of what was happening to our country. This record goes back to what I did with Sevis Traw and the Ascension, which is right from my own personal observations and experiences. That's really interesting that you gravitated back in that direction because those first three records are so bitingly intense and very personal from your own upbringing, your own troubled youth. What inspired you to turn back to that period? I would have thought that after the Ascension, perhaps I was reading into this, that you'd worked through those, you know, forgive me for using this word, demons, but you'd, I thought maybe perhaps you'd worked through those. They're different demons, man. I mean, you know, life happens. It just 
just not a stagnant thing. The things that I wrote about, I was a kid when I wrote Sevastra, I wrote about the things that happened to me when I was a kid, and the, that was from a, a young person's perspective, and then the ascension was from a person growing up and, and understanding those things, and then I, I got really dropped into politics because of George W. Bush and, and the aftermath of that and what he was doing to the working class and the working people and to our military. And so I have relatives in the military. I come from the working class. So he was attacking my people. So I felt I needed to speak up for them and try to inspire them. And then when Generation Doom came around, for me, it, was, it wasn't like I was revisiting old demons. There's, there's a plenty of new stuff to, to talk about because life keeps happening. I wasn't suggesting that the specific subject matter was, but just that you turned back to a more personal approach rather than a more global, topical. Yeah, but when you say the word demon, that sounds like that this is like a, a negative record, and it's not. I mean, it's a, it's, there are very positive songs in the South, very strong songs in the South. Equal rights, equal left is about standing up for yourself yep. and standing up for your right to exist. Down is really a take on the music industry and, and other artists and also just, you know, people in my world that seem to think that they can take me down, which they haven't done it yet. That's really what the song's about. When Aristotle and I sat down to write the record, you know, we were like, look, there's only one rule. There's no rules. We're not going to try to write for a genre. We're not going to write according to what other people think we should sound like. We're going to write a record that we like and the songs we like and the riffs we like and the lyrics we write and the melodies we like. That's what we're going to do. And, you know, that's what we did. One of the things that I really marvel about you is your ability to go from a very intense, almost blast beat sort of song to crooning and doing sort of pop melodies. And I'm wondering in your songwriting, when you're crafting your lyrics, and I know you come from a lyric vantage first, are you already kind of imagining a sort of soundscape that you then go to your musicians with and I want to hear this? Or do you take their riffs and their melodies that they're coming up with and pair it with your lyrics? It's both. Sometimes I will hear a melody and we'll write music around that. Sometimes Aristotle will bring a riff to me and we'll adapt it around that. But most of the time, he and I, our chemistry is so strong that we found we were writing the same song at the same time. We weren't even talking to each other about it. That really intimate, creative intercourse that we have together we just it just happens. A lot of the stuff people are saying, oh, you're singing more in this record. You're doing more things in this record. The riffs are great. Because we're doing what we want to do this time. And that was one of my demands when I partnered with the label was that we were going to do what we wanted to do creatively. We had creative control. That's how Equal Rights to Go Left ended up on the record because that's basically a rap song, you know, with a trap beat. For me, it's, it was important because I started off as a spoken word artist before I even started music, and I also was an MC. I just added that into the fusion of what was happening at the time with bands like Slipknot and Deftones, and, and those are the bands that I listened to, Rage Against the Machine. Those are the bands that inspired me, so I was going to take that and put that into live music. So for me to be able to go back home, lyrically, for Equal Rights, Equal Lefts was, was magical. And I also know that homophobia is rampant in hip-hop, so I wanted to kind of take that message to their wheelhouse. They're like, listen, lyrically, y'all can step up and try to challenge me all you want, but listen, I'll, I'm going to bring this to you and be just as braggadocious about what I do with women, and we have the same rights as anybody else. I mean, Lil Wayne talked about, you know, excuse my language, but he'll say stuff like all up on some faggot shit. What does that mean? What if I threw the N-word around? You know, what is that? 
Drake will say something about no homo, and Kanye will say something about a blonde dyke. And it's like there are kids who are gay and lesbian who look up to them, but yet, and Eminem too, I mean, that motherfucker too. I mean, there are kids who look up to them, and they're gay and lesbian, and yet they're made to feel less of a person by the artists that they look up to the most. But they use these tough language, so I really wanted to go back into their world because for me it's about writing a song about gays and lesbians where they can feel strong about who they are. We need to follow in Harvey Milk's legacy and unite, but also a place where we rally and organize, and that's really what the song is trying to do. Before we get to the second half of our conversation with Otep, let's hear the song she just talked about. From Generation Doom, this is Equal Rights, Equal Lefts on Metal Brainiac. Equal rights, equal lefts, fight for your right to exist. Equal rights, equal lefts, fight for your right to exist. Equal rights, equal lefts, fight for your right to exist. Fight for your right to exist. He called me a dyke. I called him an ambulance. I can make you famous too, but you tremble at the thought of that. I see more spine and jellyfish, that's an invertebrate, Google that. I've been in the shadows long enough, I got nothing to lose, so I'm playing rough. So humdrum, so dumb, you picked a fight with the wrong one. You brought a butter knife to a tank fight, I put you on blast and fucked your wife. Weapon systems activated, your ego's been deflated. All choked up, you need a ventilator. She seems so sweet, I had to taste her. Let's get one thing straight, I'm not. Sex is art, I'm Basquiat. Love is love, it can't be stopped. So go fuck yourself, cause it's all you got. To every religion, it isn't a choice, but it is a decision. Come out of the closet, break out of the prison. Love who you are, let no one inhibit. Don't get in your way, or make the mistake of living in fear for the rest of your days. So tighten your fists and firmly say the following phrase. He called me a dyke. I called him an ambulance. I can make you famous too, but you tremble at the thought of that. He called me a dyke. I called him an ambulance. I can make you famous too, but you tremble at the thought of that. So go fuck yourself, this is all you got. Last but not least, let me finish the story. How I met your girl and we fucked her the morning. And she found religion in every position. Screaming, no oh God, and singing in hymnals. Gay for a day, that's what she claimed. But that's what these chicks always say. She's calling my home, texting my phone, sending me snaps and begging for more. So say what you say, do what you do. But I'll always get more pussy than you. I'll always get more pussy than you. Equal rights, equal Straight, I'm not. Sex is not a 
Let's get back to my conversation with Otep Shamaya. One of the things that came to mind when I was studying more deeply into your lyrics and your music throughout your discography is you you seem to me, um, at least today, as one of the few real activist artists and protest artists in the metal and rap rock world. You don't hear that as much anymore. I was wondering how you feel about wearing those labels as an activist artist and protest artist. I've been doing that since our first album. That's who I am. That's what I've always been. All my art, I you know, it was always about protest. The things that I disagreed with, and before I was in a band, I was I'd write poems about it and perform those. I did that right. on Deaf Poetry. I wrote a, a poem called Hail Caesar, which is about George W. Bush avoiding the draft and using his father's power so he can hide in Texas during Vietnam. Bands like Rage Against the Machine stood up for people's rights and against corporate America and the government excesses over their citizens. That taught me that, that you could use music in that way. Even when I wrote Warhead, you know, years ago, I had some of my peers come up to me like, God, yeah, I wish you shouldn't have wrote that song. It's going to do damage to your career. It's going to slow things down for you. I said, I don't think I fucking care about that. That's not why I wrote the song, to advance my career, because nobody's saying anything about what this evil man is doing to our country. Well, let me ask you, Otep, is it important for you that your audience, your listeners, are inspired into action by your music, that your music actually leads to movement and protest? I hope they do, and they have. I've been meeting a lot of people now, especially because we're back into a political season. Uh, we're, we're meet, I'm meeting with a lot of people now who have, who've joined movements. I spoke with one fan in Denver who wrote me a long time ago about a bad situation she was in at home and what she, if she should go to school or just give up and run away. And I told her that school was probably the best thing for her. And she ended up getting her doctorate degree, and now she's a lawyer and she's a civil rights attorney in Denver. And, you know, that's the, all that an artist can ever expect to do is to inspire other people. You know, all that we can ask for is that people listen. They disagree. I want them to disagree with an educated opinion, not just disagree because they were regurgitating something they heard on Fox News or their friends or their parents or whatever. You mentioned that only recently are you starting to see some real climb in terms of public awareness, a broader acceptance. And I'm wondering why you think it's taken this long for that to happen. I mean, you've been on some pretty big tours. You've been on some big stages. You, you've captured at least a lot of fan attention. Why do you think the tides have not really swept you up into a larger public awareness? What do you think has been inhibiting that? You could go down the line, the list of reasons why. I'm a woman, I'm a, I'm a gay, I'm outwardly vocal about equal rights, I'm vegan, I'm an animal rights activist. Uh, our music is very heavy, but it doesn't play to the rules of what everyone else considers to be quote-unquote metal, which is why we, I always fought that moniker, because I respect metal bands and I don't think we belong in that genre. Why do you think you don't belong in that genre? I mean, of all genres, if, if you have to be placed in one. Name one metal band for me. Just name a metal band. Uh, Machine Head. Machine Head is an industrial metal band. They're not a metal band. Put a Megadeth CD on. Listen to that. And listen to an OTEF CD. How much do we sound alike? Not at all. And the metal community is very, very exclusive as to what metal is. And so why try to keep forcing us from the label perspective, forcing us into this place where 
they don't, the, the new metal people, metalheads don't really dig us. We do have crossovers. We have fans that are Heshers and true metalheads. Sure, why not? That's part of what we do is metal, is influenced by metal, but we're not a metal band. We are a fusion band. We are a rap core. We are a new metal, whatever you want to call us. But I think it's a disservice to call us a traditional metal band. Well, I wouldn't have said a traditional metal band. Metal has so many splinters. There's death metal, there's technical death. I mean, there's so many different areas. And I was wondering if because you're a self-described fusion band, has it been hard to land the kind of tours that you feel, I mean, you're headlining now, you dictate the tour. But when you're opening... We don't get a lot of offers to open for a lot of bands. I think that has to do with a lot of bands that are afraid to go on after us because, as you saw the other night, the intensity that we put on, there's not a lot of bands that want to go on after us. But it's not just... I mean, there's a lot of talk in the political arena right now about the woman card, Hillary Clinton playing the woman card. But the, the fact of the matter is, look at any festival. How many female-fronted bands are on those festivals? How many? How many female-fronted bands are there? Tons. How many really good female front of bands are there? Tons. Why are they being chosen? There's a reason. The promoters, the people that put those festivals together do not book those bands. So whenever we go out and have live signing runs, we try to find we try to find female front of bands to do that. It's interesting because you obviously have fans who follow you and you think promoters would be interested in the bottom line first. You know, they want to make money. If you guys and In This Moment and The Agonist and Arch Enemy and all these other female-fronted bands, in some ways uh, the promoters are almost behind the times politically as well as socially. You're also referring to a genre that a lot of it is still very old school in the way that they see women and that they see women's roles in music and in society. And I don't play to any of those goddamn rules. And I'm very outspoken about it because if you try to take something away from me, I have the right to speak about it. I have the right to say you don't have that right to take that away from you. The good thing about now is people are getting a better understanding of what kind of band we are. And that's making it more palatable is maybe the word. that Like, oh, they're not this crazy metal band. They're just a crazy group band. You know, that writes really great music, that stands for something, that have strong opinions, and but they really make great music, and people are getting behind that. Generation Doom is, we broke Billboard's top five. Our single's a top 40 single right now, and this never happened to us before. I think people are just catching on, and it took them a while. I was the first female front of band to ever play Ozfest. Much love to Sharon Osbourne for allowing that to happen. She picked me personally. So I, even after all these years, we still have a lot to go through. I mean, heck, the next thing to find out is, is start checking guarantee payments and find out how much if female front of bands are getting paid the same as male front of bands. I mean, I don't know if they want me to start looking there. But at this point, I'm very proud of where we are as a band. I'm very proud of our fans. I'm very proud of uh, the response we've received. I mean, from critics who gen genuinely hate us, have given us just glowing reviews of the new record because we wrote a great record, not because of any other agenda, but because the record's good and it's kind of undeniable. And that's that's what I'm most proud of. I mean, the other stuff, we're, that's sort of just like, you can ask a woman in any, in any industry what it's like being a woman in that industry, and most of them are going to say it's pretty goddamn tough. You know, we're still fighting. It's better. President Obama, just a year ago or so, just signed the Lindley Ledbetter Act, which it's against the law to pay women less for the same work. I mean, this is the 21st century, and we have to make that a law? And there was still a lot of protest around that, you know, in Congress. Yes, there were. That's right. 
I know you don't limit yourself to music. You know, you, in fact, I, I know you won't remember this, but I interviewed you about a decade ago just about your poetry. And I know you, you started in that realm. I know you're an author. You wrote a series of short stories that became a book. And I'm wondering, can you tell me about your book? I, I haven't seen it and what you were looking to explore through literature that perhaps departed from your callings in music and poetry. The book's called Movies in My Head, and it's three short stories. One of my favorite authors, and I'm lucky to call him a friend, his name is Harlan Ellison. He also, he's a, the Mark Twain of our era. He's a short story writer, and I read a lot of his stuff. I don't know, I'd never written short stories before, so I just wanted to give it a try. And I was trying to, to write three separate stories in three different eras about three different things, but somehow tie them all together, and that was really my objective. I don't know, I, I, I came close, I think. I mean, I've written a lot of op-eds. There's a book called Quiet Lightning on the Noisy Mountain. That is a book of all my op-eds and, and different editorial writings that I've done over the years. I have started a few other stories. I've written a couple of screenplays um, that are being shopped in, in the industry right now. You're really kind of a renaissance artist. I'm wondering, do you always see yourself kind of stepping in and out of these different forms of expression? And I'm wondering what compels you to write music versus a screenplay versus poetry versus literature? Are there different topics that you want to explain through different mediums or is it what, what compels you in one direction or another? The difference between writing a screenplay or a book or poetry or, or songs Really, it's, it's not a conscious decision. I just find that I will have an urge, an idea that I can't stop thinking about, and so I'll try to write it down, and then really whatever form it takes. I mean, sometimes, you know, you want to write a story like I did in Movies in My Head. Movies in My Head was a story about a haunted mine, and there's an old miner. The mine collapsed, and he's going in after his nephew, a young boy. They used to use little kids to get into the small spaces, it's kind of a mission of no return because he doesn't know even because there's no life, there's nothing down there, and once he gets down there, even if he finds him alive, how does it get back up? Writing that, it didn't seem musical as much to me. Yeah, at the time, I, I just I, I just sat down and started writing, and it became kind of a story, and, and then uh, the characters kind of started popping up in my head, and I could hear their voices wanting to speak, so I gave them a way to speak, and Poetry, the difference between poetry and song, I think the difference is poetry is either one long chorus or one long verse. Sometimes the poems become a song, and sometimes they don't. I, a lot of the poems uh, that were in my poetry books became songs on Generation Doom. For example, in Cold Blood, I had gone through a really bad breakup. And the thing is, is that not a lot of gays and lesbians, it's changing now because it's becoming more acceptable, but... Like, when I was a kid, I was in the closet, and I couldn't have a first love at a young age. Like, a lot of people have that first love in high school or junior high, middle school, whatever, and they're able to have that, and you cope with it as you grow older. And a lot of gays and lesbians have their first loves as adults. And that relationship, she was my, I thought, was my first love. And losing that relationship was really difficult for me. So I wrote the line, something's wrong with me thinking something's right with you and that was a poem and that ended up becoming the chorus in Copeland. You 
You know, it's interesting because you also include poetry, outright poetry on your records as transitional elements and pieces unto themselves. And I think that you do that really effectively. And I was wondering if that's something that you're intentional about, or, you know, like you just said, you turned a poem into a song. Are you always looking to do that? Or do you have a clear sense? No, I want to use this as a poem, as a mood transition or anything like that. Yeah, thank you. No, it's uh, it's never conscious. It's never that deliberate of a decision. It just it's sort of an instinctive thing that happens. If a piece of music's being played and suddenly I hear those words in my head that I've written, then I know it belongs in that song. I'm sort of a slave to the muses, and they kind of direct me and navigate me as to where things belong. You know, a lot of times on stage I'll improv. Uh, scares the hell out of the band, <laughs> but I'll improv between between songs with, with different bits of poetry, and it's really tough for me to sing In Cold Blood live because I am, uh, for lack of a better term, a method singer. I'm a method person. I have to live the moment in order for the emotions to be real, and so I have to remember what that felt like, and that's that's hard to dig those emotions back up when you're trying to heal and get over something, you know. You said something that really sounded insightful and something I hadn't thought of before, but how a lot of, at least maybe in your generation of uh, gay and lesbian young people, they never got to experience that first love until they became adults. And in some ways, you're kind of, you know, you take it as sort of a rite of passage at certain points of life. And I'm wondering if you feel like you're really catching up in a lot of ways to others of your generation at least emotionally and experientially in certain realms? Do you feel like you're behind in certain senses? Listen, I, you know, there are some people that never experience the first love, gay, straight, whatever, just because of how life is. Um, but I had a lot of girlfriends when I was a kid. We were just always, it was secret. And if we ever got caught or if everybody got wind or, you know, said something rude about, you know, oh, you're gay, throw tap, and something like that, the girls would most often deny me, they would push me away, they would make fun of me with those people, and that that was very hurtful, and, and it made me even want to crawl further away from being who I was, because I was a fighter, still am, and I didn't want to beat up the people that I loved, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to beat up people that I care about, so I just withdrew, and I think that was really painful, so in some respects, there's a whole generation, and I think it's just a recently new phenomenon where kids are brave enough now and society is accepting enough now and we have a lot of hetero allies who are protecting these gay and lesbian kids so that they can be out. There's still problems. I'm not dismissing that. I just met a woman the other night who came to a show. She doesn't like our music. She's a mom. She only came because she wanted to give me something that belonged to her daughter who was gay and who was bullied and committed and she ended up committing suicide. And I feel really terrible about that. But there is something to the idea that not a lot of gays and lesbians get to have their first love until they're adults. And then when you right. become an adult, when you think you're finally free of all that high school nonsense, and you're finally a, a free person and you can do your own thing, you're still told that you don't deserve that kind of love. It, it, does, it does something to you emotionally. What an odd experience, and maybe this happens to you a lot, but you talked about that woman, that mother who came to you who wasn't a fan, yet her daughter committed suicide. She felt compelled 
to approach you. And she said, you said she gave you something. What did she give you if you feel at liberty to talk about this and talk about how common this is for you to be approached by people who see you as an icon, whether to both embrace or as an icon that is to, you know, to go butt up against. How often does that happen for you when you tour? It happens quite a bit, actually. She gave me um, her daughter's diary, which I thought was pretty amazing, and I will keep forever. We also had another lady who came, uh, another mother, who came. Her, her daughter also committed suicide, and she gave me some of her daughter's ashes because we were her favorite band and had gotten her through so many difficulties and so much uh, so the bullying and, and all the, the, the difficulties that she had endured in her life, but just for some reason wasn't able to cope anymore. And her mother was so grateful to us that our music spoke to her, her daughter, and gave her strength and hope for so long And that she came to our show. She waited the whole show. She came to the meet and greet after the show. She waited in line. We knew nothing about it. This was just, she just, we thought she was just another person there because our demographic is so large. And she gave me a picture, a black and white photo of her daughter, and she gave me some of her, her daughter's ashes and said that, and thanked me for her being there in her daughter's darkest hours. And so we take that very, very, it's hard to talk about. We get fans coming through every night who self-harm. They've got scars from cutting. I always tell them no. And you've written about cutting in your music. I mean, you went through that. I have. I did. And because part of the reason I write these songs is because I was that kid. I think that we are a strong species and we can get through anything except for loneliness. I think loneliness is when you feel absolutely alone in a world and, and you don't think anyone understands your pain or understands what you're going through, then that's the worst place, the darkest hole you can't dig out of. When I have people that come to our shows who give me their daughter's ashes when, or give me their daughter's diaries or give me their pictures or I see fans who tell me that I was going to commit suicide and then your song came on the radio and because my partner committed suicide and I wanted to join her. Or I saw a Facebook status where you said, please, don't take your hue from this life. Stay colorful. Let us, you know, don't, if you're thinking of committing suicide or self-harm, don't do it. I wrote that Facebook just on a whim. I don't even remember making it, but someone read it. She told me she read it. She didn't kill herself because of it. I relate to it. I understand it. And when I was that kid, I wished I had someone to be that person for me. And so now I'm trying to be that person for everyone else. My huge thanks to OTEP for today's great conversation. Metal Brainiac is a member of Jabberjaw Media, a network of independent podcasts about music and culture. If you like today's episode, you'll love all the others we've done since we launched in May of 2015. All our episodes are at MetalBrainiac.com. You can also subscribe for free through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spreaker. Until next time, I'm Matt Pikin, wishing you a metallic week. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.